And here's a great quote from John Waters. Whatever you might have heard, there is absolutely no downside to being famous. None at all. <laughs> He's one of my heroes. The table back there. And uh, we also have two of Dimitri's books on sale tonight. And we are an independent bookstore. And that's how we pay the rent. And this feller here, uh, he's a publisher, the publisher of Namaste, Mother Hooker, and... Uh, <laughs> Editor, really, but yeah. Okay. Uh, and some of, some of his uh, works will be for sale this evening. Um, there was one other thing I was going to mention, and I can't remember what it is, but, uh, well, Ben Terrell, and uh, Dmitry Samarov, and you know Chicago's famous for yeah, Barack Obama, <laughs> Oprah Winfrey, and now Dmitry Samarov. Forgot Al Capone. <laughs> I think he made the pizza, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't have a lot of brilliant things to say. Hi, Mitchell. Um, That's brilliant. But I did want to offer a quote, which is on the back of Dimitri's book. So you know, I'm I'm kind of wasting your time because you can pick up and pick it up and read it yourself. But it's a great quote. It's from the great writer Luke Sante. He said, "If Iggy Pop hadn't gotten there first, Dimitri Samarov might have called this book I Am the Audience." with its evocative drawings, which you'll see behind you. Honest, rec uh, sorry. Honest reactions and it intermittent slices of memoir, music to my eyes conveys a palpable sense of the community of music. It's haphazard venues, it's marginal economy, it's shifting career paths, it's highs and lows. Samaroff is loyal but not uncritical sad and funny pretty much at the same time and passionately in need of music, which always makes him ready for the next thing, whatever it might be. That's from Luke Sante. So it's a great little book. I just reread it. And uh, the artwork is beautiful. Drawings that Dimitri was inspired by the music he writes about to uh, do. And uh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I also wanted to say this, uh, the, the book right behind my left shoulder is also a really great read. I highly recommend it. I've bought it as a gift for more than one person, and I didn't get any complaints. Um, <laughs> great stories uh, inspired by Dimitri's years as a cab driver. And uh, so unlike me, he put his years driving cab to good use. Um, yeah, so I mean, one of the reasons, and Ben's not going to talk about any of this apparently, but that uh, a lot of the subject matter of this book and that book, I mean, was maybe not completely inspired by, but Ben was one of the guys I met when I worked at a bookstore in Brookline, Massachusetts, and he was one of these older guys that introduced me to the stuff that the the books, the culture, the the music that you know, I'm still listening to and inspired by to this day. But also, Ben, back then, this was in the mid to late 80s, was a cab driver. And 
weirdly enough, you know, you know, seven, eight years after I met him, I became a cab driver myself. So it's all Ben's fault is what he's trying to say. <laughs> Thank you. All of this, the fact that you're here, you know, the fact that these books exist, it's all Ben's fault. <laughs> and uh, we actually, yeah, we met at a movie theater in Brookline, Massachusetts. Did you mention that? Yep. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like the theater cab driver, so the yes. um, manager of my cab company would call me at the theater every now and then when they couldn't find me and ask me why I wasn't working because they knew I was there. And uh, I think we got into uh, going to shows together when you, you had a fake ID, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, fake ID days, yeah. And Boston was pretty strict back then about, you know, 21 plus shows. There was, there was some all ages shows, but for the most part, yeah, you had to have a fake ID. And yeah, so we would go to these strange little places like uh, Green Street Station. In Jamaica? Was in Jamaica, Jamaica Plain, Jamaica. And, and The Rat in Kenmore Square, uh, where punk bands and garage rock bands and other bizarre music that was under the radar in the 80s, uh, which I don't know if any of you folks lived through the 80s know is one of the, the worst periods in American culture. For, and you had to dig very deep to get anything worthwhile. There, was, there wasn't much on the surface. Uh, and Ben, as, as an older guy who, with some experience of the stuff, was, introduced me to a lot of it. Yeah. And, uh, Did you ch it, uh, take me to Cheater Slicks, or was it the other way around? I think, I think you took me to see yeah. Cheater Slicks, and Cheater Slicks was this strange, aggressive, hostile band of two brothers and two guitarists and a drummer who sort of started out as a garage rock band, but basically like, did their own thing, and they're still at it. Uh, one of the, one of the like, recurring themes of this book, Music to My Eyes, is people that keep going uh, in the face of almost total indifference from their society, uh, which is sort of a, an experience uh, that I have personal, pers personal stake in, you know, is <laughs> to like, remain a creative person in this country is really fucking difficult. And uh, the people that I write about and draw in this book are some of the people that inspired me to keep going. Uh, Cheers looks among them. There's there's two chapters of the book about this band that uh, I formed like friendships with and just take as a an example of uh, persistence uh, and a, a way forward where as everybody around is not giving you any reason to and you just go on yeah and that's kind of their thing yeah yeah it's, it seems like you. Uh focus on and are inspired by music that doesn't hue to one genre or can be categorized by one label, which is, I assume, why you uh, hate it when people ask you what kind of music you like. Yeah, it's sort of an impossible, yeah, uh, and I think, yeah, what, yeah, um, and I think maybe coming up, when I came up in the 80s, it was such a, it was sort of the end of, uh, genres of music being really coherent, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, you know, before that, uh, I, I wasn't quite old enough to like be in the original punk scene in the late 70s when that was like a, 
a, a reaction against the mainstream, but it was a co it was sort of like an organized sort of like way of life and everything for a few years, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it fractured very quickly. And by the time I was aware of music, I didn't know and didn't didn't belong to any one scene. So I didn't know that like you weren't supposed to like Led Zeppelin and the Sex Pistols at the same time. You know, <laughs> I, and like and then from people like Ben and some other older people, I was introduced introduced to a lot of different kinds of music and there I didn't know about the divisions of like it wasn't like a sports team where like if you were into jazz you couldn't like rock or like whatever uh, I don't I don't perceive art or music that way and uh, th those are just mostly marketing gimmicks that's it's garbage uh, and yeah so the book is sort of a chronicle of my my going to hear music and, and drawing bands uh, going back about 30 years um, and basically the the book started from the drawings I have hundreds of these drawings I have sketchbooks full of them uh, some of them are scrolling in, in back there but uh, what I did to put the book together basically is picked uh, 100 150 drawings and just looked at the drawings and wrote what the time in my life when it happened some other peripheral stuff if I knew the musicians personally, I would write about that, but it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a hard to categorize book, I think. Uh, but you know, it's all stuff that happened. It's all um, it's a yeah, it's some some sort of uh, record of a time and and places, you know. Uh, but it's it's certainly not like a like a big statement, like whatever diatribe or like defense of one kind of creativity, you know, or music. Yeah, I like that you don't have one axe to grind in the book, or you're not trying to tie everything into an overarching theme, but you kind of let the experiences speak for themselves, and the same, I mean, that I think the artwork is really evocative, as, as you can probably tell from the screen behind us, but um, yeah, I was in thinking about the whole thing with labels. I thought of one band that you and I both really liked, uh, the Minutemen, and how they would all talk about. Well, the the leader of the band would talk about how um, when punk became hardcore, it kind of became how do you pronounce that? Codified, codified, yeah. um, and uh, that these kids were kind of blowing it because. Punk was supposed to make everything open to all possibilities, yeah. and um, it became this thing where there were strict labels again. And and maybe after that opening, it sort of went back to being more of a thing where there were strict categories. And I I was wondering how if you comparing that time to now, what you think? I don't have a really good read on contemporary music, I would say, but I just, you know, wondered what you thought about how it, things have shifted with the internet and streaming and, and you know, live music now. And yeah. Well, I mean, one of the big problems, I mean, to me now is that because the internet, internet has made everything, at least on the surface, available, it kind of is, it has this, like, leveling effect of putting everything on the same, on the same plane. Uh -huh. And then it... I mean, it's great that like young people can discover like bands from the '70s, but there's money. There's suddenly money to be made, and there's this whole thing of these, you know, what a friend of mine calls zombie bands, that 
that have their reunion bands that get back together to cash in on the nostalgia. Uh -huh. But it's like this thing of, you know, 60-year-olds uh, playing 20-year-old people music. Mm -hmm. and, and it's the, that tension of that, like, how do you keep going without just being a, like a novelty act or a, like a cash-in? Uh -huh. that, that's a problem now. But uh, as far as style, I mean, it's, it's just a complete, like, crazy grab bag, you know, like mm -hmm. there's, I don't know if there's any, any one style, but then, yeah, also the music I like tends to be played in, in small, like crappy bars. It's not, it's not in big venues. So I don't have a, a, a great sense of what, like the, the greater entertainment industry is, is pushing, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm the guy, there's a, there's a, a little vignette, uh, of me, about 20 years ago, like wandering into a little bar and hearing the White Stripes for a couple of songs and wondering why there's a guy trying to sing like Robert Plant and just leaving. And then the next thing you know, they're on the cover of Rolling Stone and they're like the biggest thing since sliced bread. But yeah, I wouldn't be a good like A&R scout or whatever, like, whatever, like, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not guided by that principle. I, I don't know what sells. I don't know what the trends are. Not a big picture guy. Uh, I have a very like visceral and very personal reactions to music and art, but I, I, there's not an agenda and there's certainly not like any kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, forethought or like attempt to put it in a big, con big context. I don't know. Probably wouldn't be good as a PR guy either, no. I guess. No. <laughs> Just a suspicion. Um, what do you th what do you think about with uh, I mean, given the problems with um, musicians being able to sell um, their music and make a living now, be partly because of the uh, ever present nature of streaming music, not giving the music musicians enough. Um, what do you think about the? Uh, state of live music being able to support musicians from your experiences meeting people? Well, I mean, from uh, anybody I've ever talked to, any working musician, the only way they make money is, is by touring. And they make a little bit of money by selling like vinyl records at merch tables at their events. But uh, yeah, I mean, they make pra practically nothing off recorded music otherwise. So it's sort of, yeah, it's gone back to, you know, in a way, this kind of like vaudeville roadshow kind of deal where you have to pull, pull, you know, the, your circus, you know, caravan into town and put yeah. on a show. Uh, it's weird because, yeah, you have all this new technology, but it's forcing people into very, very old ways of making money. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm sort of faced with that problem with the promotion of this book, which you know, it's a hardcover book with foil stamping. It's like, it's sort of basically a, an art print, basically in book form, but it's not available uh, on any major, uh, you know, book distribution channel. And uh, so it's, it's me showing up to talk to people like you and hoping that a couple of you will like it and spread the word. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very, very uh, aware of, you know, the, the problems of, getting the word out there about any kind of creative pursuit, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and music, yeah, included for sure, yeah.
So do you uh, feel that the appreciation of live music has persisted and grown to a certain extent because it's, I don't know. I can't, I can't tell, I mean, I know some people get really, really down and just quit, quit the whole, mm -hmm. the whole thing, but, and then on the other side there's these things like, in Chicago there's this thing every summer called Riot Fest, and what Riot Fest is, is bands like The Misfits or The Replacements or like these bands from decades ago reforming with whatever still like alive or semi-living members <laughs> <laughs> and, and doing doing this kind of like show of you know they're they're no longer they're not making new music they're not they're they're re kind of playing the stuff from the past mm -hmm. and uh that's i i don't i don't know uh i i understand that people that didn't live through the stuff the first time like they think this is an opportunity you know to catch some of what they missed but i i don't know if it's good or bad but at the same time i don't blame the people that never made any money off their music to f want to finally make some, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's understandable, but uh, on, on the other hand, it keeps them from developing their work and, and moving onward. Like, uh, I mean, one of the biggest inspirations for me in the, like music is this guy, Peter Prescott, who was a drummer for a band called Mission of Burma, and then had another band in the 80s called the Volcano Sons, which Ben introduced me to, you know. Uh, Great band. Yeah, and he's he's got, you know, he's in his early 60s now, and he's still playing music. Mission of Burma got back together and actually made new music, so which kind of set them apart from a lot of the, the zombie bands, in my book at least. But that the second run of that band also ran its course to where he felt stifled and boxed in by uh, the constraints of that music. Uh, and he went off and made his own music and like he's in his early 60s and he's running Kickstarters to fund like the fund these records. He's gonna put, put out two records by a band, his new band called Mini Beast, which is great. But yeah, he's like, he's still got that curiosity and the drive to move, move on, move forward. But like how you do that now is, you know, everybody's gotta, slap it together from, you know, I don't know, uh, I, you know, like I bartend, I do a lot of freelance shit, but uh, I, I don't know how, I don't know very many people that actually make a living from, from their creative pursuits. Very, very few, yeah. Was Mission of Burma able to do okay when they were, got together again? Because yeah. I saw them out here and they were amazing, very influential, uh, early 80s, late 70s band originally? When did they start, 78? Yeah, I think, the, I think their original run was like 79 or 80 to 83. They only lasted three or yeah. four years, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like an amazing, one of the best bands to come out of Boston ever, you know, for sure. But they, uh, even when they got back together again and they played out here, they didn't have, the, I thought they would have really big crowds that would pack these venues given how uh, big an influence they had on so many other groups. I mean, even like Nirvana and some bands that got really huge were and Husker Du sure. were influenced by them, but they were, uh, I think they were really ahead of their time. But um, this guy, Peter, Peter Prescott, really inspired me when, like Dimitri, I was being very depressed by living in Boston. And um, 
he uh, wrote songs where he had kind of this hilarious absurdist bent where he put together these strange word collages and then there would be uh, kind of an amazing mix of uh, kind of feedback drenched guitars and strange time signatures and stuff but it was also very kind of catchy and fun yeah yeah there, there were i mean they, they had an odd, they had a good run the, the volcano sons which is yeah. his 80s band mostly like yeah uh but yeah i don't know how how well they ever did i in answering your question about the the second run of mission of burma i think they it it, it really varies now city to city like what the audience is like they played like at big music festivals in europe you mm -hmm. know you know mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah. rock kind of festivals yeah like the places for whom like they're heroes, you know, but uh, then other places they play in little clubs to few people. Uh, but I think I think they made more money their second run than the first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not not like making a living kind of money, but <laughs> <laughs> paying for more than coffee, paying for uh, yeah. burritos as well as coffee. Right. Uh, well, that being big in Europe and overseas is a big phenomenon with. Um, has been. Um, has been? With the has been. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. <laughs> no, actually, two Are you words, saying that Europe, Europe is for has been? He's looking at me <laughs> as he says that. That's why I'm thinking has been. But, uh, but uh, jazz and blues performers often scrape by here and then do much better in Europe. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about your interest in. Uh, not just one kind of jazz, but um, kind of avant-garde stuff. And specifically, you write about our old friend Dave Bryant in here, who played with um, Ornette Coleman for a while. Yes. He studied with Ornette Coleman. He was a really interesting guy. He, um, he was a uh, theater manager at the movie theater where we both met. And Dimitri does a really good job of describing how he was kind of most of the time kind of sleepy and low-key and very um uh yeah i mean he seemed like he kind of had this shaggy hair like there would be in his eyes and he was a very low energy guy you know yeah. like i mean he looked like he was probably stoned a lot of the time but you know or, he actually didn't he seemed oh, he like that never oh, okay so he was yeah. naturally that way yeah uh okay but i didn't know that uh <laughs> learn something but in any case yeah yeah this kind of like shy retiring guy that was just kind of like, mm -hmm, you know like plotting around this movie theater and then i went to see him play music and he was just like a madman you know like yeah, he was yeah. a piano put like an avant-garde jazz uh piano guy who was sort of inspired by the music and the philosophies of Ornette Coleman, who kind of invented his own music language. Uh, and then, yeah, like one of the cool things that happens if you follow musicians over over time is like they just show up. And I, I got to see Dave play in Chicago, uh, I think it was two years ago, at, at this little experimental place. And it's just amazing to see somebody, you know, that far back still still at it. And still kind of stretching, and he had a pickup band of uh, like local, like a local drummer and a local uh, bass player, and they they could barely keep up with him, you know what he was doing, and it's that thing of where like saving all the craziness and creativity for 
for for the thing that you do, and then like in in your everyday life, you just you're shot. You're like sort of normal and like kind of unassuming. Who's that quote like a from in the book? Thing. I'd heard that a week before I read it, and I'm forgetting now. It's from oh, uh, not Chekhov. Is it from that French novel? French writer? Uh, Jesus Christ. It'll no, it wasn't Jesus back. Christ. He's not French. <laughs> oh, he, he, he's not Jesus, French. Jesus, no, no, Jesus. French? No, he's not. All right. Breaking news, everybody. Get that on the fucking social media. Jesus was not French. Oh, um, uh, boy. That's it. Madame Bovary. Who wrote Madame Bovary? Flaubert. 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 Yes. Thank you. Yes. God. Uh, Oh, I'm, I'm going to mangle the quote. Yeah, I don't have to pay attention. It's it about saving all the wildness for, for your art and like being kind of shy and retiring in, yeah. in yeah, yeah, everyday yeah. life, but he puts it much better. Yeah, the writer Paul Bowles said that once about, uh, he, he was kind of an influence on the beat, the novelist, and uh, also wrote music on the beat movement, on the beats in the 50s. And he went to North Africa and left the U.S. Uh, in the 40s, I think, late 40s. But he always said um, he didn't understand why people made advertisements of how they were rebels. But he should keep uh, as low profile as possible and then fuck with people's heads through your work, basically. It's kind of a similar character. Yeah, that's, in, that's in that way. That's not, like that's, those are, that's a good modus operandi, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, was uh, Dave uh, leading you to Ornette, how you got no, also got No, no, I, I don't think back then, so yeah, when Dave was the manager at the Coolidge Corner Theater, I didn't know where that the music he was doing came from. I didn't learn about Ornette Coleman until a couple of years later because mm. I dated uh, a woman who was a really serious uh, saxophone player yeah. and, and she introduced me to Ornette Coleman but I you know I didn't know that Ornette Coleman was sort of like the antichrist of, of traditional jazz like I came to it from like punk music and it made all kinds of sense to yeah, me yeah, like yeah. Ornette Coleman doesn't sound weird to me but I guess to traditional like acolytes of jazz he's just like the antichrist yeah well it's funny it's I think it's a similar situation to the labeling that we were talking about earlier with um, jazz and bebop coming up after swing. Mm. There was this big thing with critics who were writing about it saying that this is this crazy new music and it's nothing like the jazz we knew. But the musicians who were actually playing in major cities where it was coming up a lot of times played with the old swing guys mm -hmm. and i've read uh memoirs where musicians have said yeah they come up with these label labels and they're mostly white writers and of course it's mostly black music sure and yeah. they're kind of like putting us in these categories but they're not these wars between you know, Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington or something, and no, I mean, you know, Mingus yeah, played with any Duke kind of, Ellington. not just in music, but any, in any, you know, like, when, when some writer comes up with a label for a style, you know, mm -hmm. there's very few of the people that are supposed to be pigeonholed in, in, in that style that will, 
will even acknowledge it, you know, they all chafe under the, the labels because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. nobody wants to be labeled. Mm -hmm. They're just doing, they're just trying to say something. Uh, but yeah, labels are a way to simplify and sell things. Uh, yeah. Uh, although, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how much, how, how many uh, records like the people that followed Orna Coleman ever sold really, but yeah, it's a, it's a limited market probably. Yeah. When you, when you started, um, well, I mean, you started being interested in art as a very young kid, but when you were becoming more serious about it, for lack of a better way to put it, um, did you feel like you wanted to do stuff that didn't uh, hew to a certain uh, school or, you know, couldn't be... Did you, uh, did you feel like you wanted to associate with uh, Ashcan or some other cat, you know, school? Or how did you feel about that? No, it I didn't know. Like, I mean, I didn't know about that stuff. I did know when I got to art school. Like, so I went to art school after graduating high school. And the things I was interested in, just the things I'd been working on already, which was mainly sort of painting from life, like looking at stuff and trying to make drawings or paintings. That, that was not the, the thing that was in fashion, you know, <laughs> like in the late 80s, early 90s in, in art schools in America, you know. So I definitely felt right away that uh, I'd be relegated to some, you know, like the, the most common uh, comment from classmates and other some, uh, professors too was like, that like, well now you like you know how to paint. Like, when are you going to paint something? Uh, kind of deal because there was this idea that like, you know, nineteen twenty year old kids in art school were already like sort of creative geniuses, that, and the the function of the teachers was just to foster their, their and coddle their egos, you know. But uh, I kept taking you know figure painting classes and figure drawing classes, which are where you know. Professors just ripped on on your shitty efforts to 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 do the thing that you know one of the main things of visual art, which is just to portray a human figure on a flat surface. You know, um, yeah. I, I I mean I knew very quickly that uh, you know my my BFA wouldn't lead to like any kind of fame or fortune. I mean that's why you know I graduated from art school in 1993 and immediately became a cab driver, you know, like, yeah. Did you, did you ever think about using your degree to um, do something professionally, you know, and winding up uh, with an art background that made money, you know, either teaching or something, and how do you, how do you feel about, and how did you feel about using your degree to get a job doing something? No, I mean, at that point, I, I was very, very sort of like strict and idealistic about how, like, well, obviously, like, there's no way I was ever going to make any money off art, so I was going to make a living some other way and just separate it and not, mm -hmm. not have it connected at all. But uh, I, tried, I tried grad school, dropped out after one semester because I didn't want to be part of the problem, which is, you know, like higher education <laughs> in America is a big fucking problem. I can't believe it still exists, but uh, that's a different conversation. Uh, but art teaching, teaching art in in uh, colleges, uh, I have very very mixed feelings about. I, I don't know that you can, you can do that effectively or well. And I didn't want to. 
I gave up. I went back to driving a cab immediately. But um, so basically, like my whole life, you know, since teenage years to now, I've worked in one way or another in the service industry. So as a cab driver, I've worked in restaurants and bakeries and stores. Uh, I now bartend part time. Uh, but uh, over the last ten or so, I've sort of like been beaten down by age and like whatever uh, and taken on like illustration jobs and like I make part of my living doing like theater reviews, book reviews, art reviews. Which are great actually. So, but yeah, like, <laughs> no, seriously. but you know, like to whatever, 23 year old Dimitri would be a total betrayal of ideals, <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah, 23 year old Dimitri would say that, you know, 48 year old Dimitri is a fucking whore, but what can you do? You know, you get tired. I, I always wait, like when I get frustrated about doing the, the this journalism stuff, where it's like I do dog portraits, for instance. Would twenty-three-year-old Dimitri would never stoop so low? <laughs> but I, I weigh that against sitting in a fucking car eighty hours a week, and I will be a whore. <laughs> I will whore whatever meager talents I have. So you know, there's a there's a little bit of a mellowing, softening. Not much, but a little. <laughs> Dimitri has a. Um... What do you call it? Uh, if you call it blather. I mean, it's sort of a communique that you put out once a week, which includes links to pieces you write, which are pictures you know, and blather. Yeah, the pictures new, and blather. Yeah, the newsletter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a great, great little newsletter, and it's filled with funny little insights and uh, offhand comments that make me laugh and make me uh, realize how much more there is to be depressed about in this country. <laughs> Which is always fun. Well, really, yeah. It's always inspirational. So, yeah, the, the thing comes out every Monday, but I spend the rest of the week wondering, what will really bum Ben out? Like, what, what can I talk about that will make him really, really fucking sad about the world? A6 because he's not sad enough on about a, it. a regular basis, yeah. <laughs> So it's a uh, fucking success. Yeah, I'm usually right. feeling too good after the weekend, you know, because it's like, what is, is it? It's a not a Working for the weekend, you know. <laughs> the weekend comes, I'm still high from everything. <laughs> I read Dimitri's communique, I'll call it. Bucket anyway, of cold even, water, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they're links. Blaming Dimitri. Yeah, it's all his fault. Oh, and yours. No yeah, and Mitchell. Mitchell helps. Too. You know, I started out blaming him for these books and like going to see these bands all the time. So it's just payback. It's payback. <laughs> but even your, you know, seriously, your journalism, which are, you know, is written on deadline and there, uh, Dimitri writes theater pieces and he writes about movies and he writes about art. And I always get something, well usually anyway, from um, reading them. No, no. They're, they're really good and it's worth subscribing to these, this thing um, and it's absolutely free. And you don't have to be on social media which re leads, <laughs> sorry, I, I can speak English occasionally, leads to uh, another thing that we were talking about earlier that you mentioned in your book was getting off social media. Yeah. Which is uh, something that kind of sang to me, even though I've never been on Twitter or Snapchat. I have a Facebook account, and I look at it, and I post um, things about my zine, and over a period of six years, I've sold three copies of my zine that way, so it's been a tremendous success for me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was... 
<laughs> I liked what you wrote about that, so I was wondering if I stop talking, you can say something about that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, for for many many different reasons, and I've written about this in, in several other venues, but in uh, in 2015, I, I I quit social media, kind of cold turkey, and uh, like the the kind of. But the, the part that I write about in, in this book about it is that, so I was on Twitter for seven years and one of the things that I would do is I'd go to these shows and I'd do a sketch of a band and then I would take a cell phone photo of the, of the sketch and post it on Twitter, you know? And uh, I'd had a, a bad day and a, a bad, you know, I don't know, year or something and uh, I decided to, to, to quit. Uh, I quit Twitter earlier in the year, but I still had Instagram, which was, I sort of likened to like, like Instagram's methadone to Twitter's, uh, you know, heroin, you know, it's, it's just, you don't get the same, you don't get the same high. Uh, but I decided, I went to the show to see a band uh, from Detroit called Proto Martyr, which I love. And uh, I had deleted uh, Instagram off my phone. So I did a sketch of the band like I always do and then went to my phone to go and post it somewhere and realized that there was nothing to post it to. So then I looked at the crowd. It was a pretty full place, a small place, but, uh, and it was, you know, there was a couple of hundred people in there and I didn't know a single one of them, you know? And I was this like, you know, 45 year old guy in a room full of mostly younger people and had no connection to them except for the band on the stage. So I had to sort of reckon with that. and. In, in these years since, I've been trying my best to just, you know, I mean, a lot of this is like an endemic problem these days, but just be present in your everyday life, you know? And that's why I'm not on social media, amongst other reasons. But this newsletter that Ben mentioned that you can, you can subscribe to on my website, which is DimitriSamrock.com, but uh, is a, uh, scratches that itch. So it's my, you know, like soapbox for the week. and. It's good because it's gradual. I have a week to come up with the things I want to talk about, and if I publish something somewhere, I link to that. But uh, it's it's good, uh, and it gives gives me time to reflect on things instead of you know just doing spitting out hot takes, which is social media is so so much for you know. Just like gut reactions, really, without any kind of the, instant, the <laughs> instantaneous response thing. I find really uh, kind of strange and disturbing, even though it's been around for ages. But it's sort of like insta-pundit in 40 characters. So yeah, people don't have yeah. time to think things through. And I think it, it's affected um, journalism. I mean, I know it's affected journalism, and even opinion pieces tend to be not as well thought out. And I think it, it, it's also because editors and publishers don't give writers time to think things through and edit their work. And um, so I think we have similar feelings about the problems with it, but. Um, well, yeah, editing online is a huge problem. Editing yeah. of any kind, that, because yeah. there just often isn't any. <laughs> yeah. uh, things are thrown up, you know, just to fill like, like this endless need for, you know, what's one of the worst terms ever, which is content, you know? Which to me, it sounds more like filler. It's like, it's like just sausage, like you get a casing and you gotta fill it up with something and it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, and that's what so much of the shit on the internet is. Uh, and you know, 
you know, there's used to be copy editors. Like a copy mm -hmm. editor is like an amazingly valuable, uh, you know, colleague to any any real writer because mm -hmm. not only will they catch like grammatical mistakes, but they will question just the reasoning or the yeah. like the, the thought yeah. process behind a piece of uh, yeah. work and I mean I got really spoiled so I the, my first book uh, that came out in 2011 which is called Hack Stories from a Chicago Cab was put out by University of Chicago Press which also puts out the Chicago Manual of Style and they're just fanatical about editing so that's the book on which I learned how books are put together and I got spoiled and thought that every book should be and everything I work on should be made this way and most things just aren't. Mm -hmm. I mean there's mistakes all over any kind of article in a newspaper these days. You'll find dozens of them. Yeah, this proofreading which catch obvious mistakes but then there's so many things that you read and you see a sentence that could be so much better if it was rewritten slightly. And one of the things that's really helped me is I have a sister who's a retired ESL teacher and she's been reading her whole life. Both her parents were writers so she started in the bassinet or something as a reader. <laughs> and um, she has really helped me so much by going through my stuff and copy editing and telling me how it might be better to reorganize something. It's Yeah, I, I think it's kind of sad that um, so many book publishers now have been bought up by big corporations that don't value writing as a, as an art or as a um, as a tool that can help people understand or you know have appreciation I mean it's a really strange time because I mean there's more books published now than ever in human history but I don't know how many of them are actually being read or, or and how closely uh, I know I mean from what the experience of book reviewing that I've had, like there's a lot of book reviewers that aren't reading the books that they're reviewing. They just aren't, you know? They're skimming them. And, and from, from being involved in journalism of different kinds, there's a lot of cutting of corners. You think part of that is there are tighter deadlines and there's zero money, so people have to work like 10 times as hard to make a few Probably, times. yeah, yeah, I mean, you do, yeah, you get <laughs> sloppy because you're just like, yeah, you're, you have to send, keep sending the widgets down the production line, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I can't, I can't do that, so I can't, you know, I can't really make a living, like, as a book reviewer, you know, mm -hmm. like, I'll t I take him on every now and again, but I'm not a fast reader, and yeah, I have to read the whole fucking book, uh, I, I'm not even a and I've read some really bad, bad books, <laughs> and I read them to the, the bitter end, you know? Yeah, I have that problem. I have a compulsion to read cover to cover, yeah. which most people... Uh, I've gotten much better, yeah, yeah, I've gotten yeah. better at putting on books that I don't like, but, uh, but you know, if I'm assigned to review it, that's a different, that's a different story. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, do you have any other big... Yeah, oh, yeah, I got, had a, a two-part question. Gotcha, journalism. Like, you yeah, here's catch one. me in a lie. Yeah, 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 there's one. <laughs> okay. It's a two-part question. Why music and does it have something to do with sound? <laughs> Just quick answer. Yeah. No comment. No comment. That's very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and the one thing that I got from your book was this feeling that uh, you can get inspiration from seeing live music that you, it's kind of in short supply in daily life. And uh, uh, a few friends out there and I went to see the guy I was telling you about earlier, the Mexican Elvis Elvis, who's a lot more than just the Mexican Elvis. And uh, the spirit that was in the crowd when he was performing, and uh, also his, you know, his messages are very uh, laced with comedy, but he was talking about uh, uh, the rights of immigrants and people coming up in the migrant caravan. And, you know, he says a song, uh, say it loud and brown and proud and stuff. And uh, he has just a thousand great one-liners and there's a great quip every 10 seconds. But I got this feeling there that I don't get very often that there's kind of like hope for humanity or something. And um, I don't know, it sounds like a died-in-the-world, died-in-the-wool 60s thing or something. But I, I was really thinking, you know, if I could leave this club and feel that way about anything that's going on at a national level in this country, things might feel a little better. But um, I don't know, I was just thinking about how, this isn't a question, obviously, I'm just babbling, but <laughs> you get that kind of sustenance from music. Well, yeah, of course, yeah. It's, yeah, it's the, it's the most inspiring thing. I mean, music is the greatest art form. There's nothing even close, you know, I don't think because it travels through the air, it doesn't need like a tangible form, it's, it's around us, mm -hmm. it goes through us. And you know, sadly, just a, mostly a, a dumb painter, but uh, and a, I'm trying to catch a little bit of that, you know, but it's, yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the greatest way that humans communicate, you know, music. There's nothing even close. So me, do you, know? you feel like that's a part of that is um, that, uh, other forms of art are mediated by being in a museum or being presented to you in this university press book or something. Do you think it makes it more direct and honest or something? Well, I mean, I think the music music has the capacity to reach the widest yeah. uh, kind of spectrum of humanity, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there might be more of a learning curve with certain kinds of art, for sure, you know, than others. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, then, yeah, things that are limited as far as, like, paintings or drawings in museums or galleries mm -hmm. limits access, limits exposure. Mm -hmm. I mean, but then again, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy that's shown, you know, art in coffee shops and bars forever, like, and kind of actually prefer it at this point from shitty experiences with galleries for a variety of reasons, but, uh, but yeah, even that, I mean, yeah, yeah, so like a, a few hundred people will see like some artwork over the space of a month, whereas like, you know, thousands, millions of people can potentially hear a piece of music, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it, yeah, it's probably a, a greater inspiration than than books or other art or movies or anything else, you know? Uh, and uh, I mean, I do have, well, like, you know, from childhood, uh, some history, uh, not an entirely happy history playing music, but because I was made to do it, but uh, something about it stuck with me, you know, ever since. Yeah. I liked reading about how you uh, 
you got money from your mom for music lessons, which you caged and then spent on records. It's kind of like keeping it yeah. in this experience of, yeah. of you know, appreciating music without actually um, doing what you, your mother wanted. Well, yeah, my, 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 my last uh, violin teacher was, uh, uh, she, she was a violinist in the Boston Symphony, and uh, I would go to her house for lessons, and my mom would give me, I think it was the 30 or $40 for these lessons, and every few weeks I would call her up about half an hour before and cancel and pocket the money. Yeah, uh, and I think she was as happy as I was because she hated teaching me. <laughs> Not my mom, I mean the teacher. My mom never found out. It was one of my better scams. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it, yeah, something about the it was just the wrong instrument and the fact of being forced to do it. But this is like a function of the children of Soviet intelligentsia are just like contractually obligated to play musical instruments. It's what we have to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't you say you also said in your book that you saw? Uh, oh, that was actually an exhibit of Soviet paintings, Russian paintings from the era of the Soviet Union to more recently, and you felt like there was this uh, feeling of repression that came through, even the most. Yeah, there was just this, this stifled kind of sadness to it. Like, it was just really, really gray and kind of, you could tell that it was made in a, in a country that just stifled all, you know, human expression, you know? Uh, yeah, that was, that was in Columbus, Ohio. It was one, on a trip I, to visit the Cheater Slicks. Yeah, yeah. yeah a, I just had an hour or two to kill, but it was this, like, weird connection to, like, where I came from, which was the Soviet Union. Uh, and seeing how, you know, it was a, that was a society that, you know, killed and destroyed, you know, many, many creative people's lives. Uh, you know, there was generations that were just stifled and, you know, whose voices were taken away from them. And, did, did your parents get uh, the Samastat publications? Is that how you say that? Samastat, yeah, which means self-published. Basically, uh, yeah, yeah, they would pass. Yeah, so in the Soviet Union in the '60s and '70s, there would be like mimeographed copies of whatever, like you know, classics of Western literature that had to be passed around from person to person, like like contraband, like on mm. the black market. Yeah, yeah. Our our house was actually raided by um, KGB agents because they'd been told by some somebody that there was a book. There's a contraband book in the house, but they didn't find it, luckily. Uh, yeah. So would they keep them really well hidden and then, or pass them along after they'd read them? Is that how yeah, yeah, they would, these copies, but like, you know, you know, really afraid and, you know, like, they were passed around like, you know, like Holy Scripture, you know, uh -huh. because, yeah, because the kind of uh, normal life there, uh, you know, you Everybody there, I mean, there's been many books written about this, that people in in the Soviet Union led a double life, which is mm -hmm. like a public life and a private life, you know? So in public, they had to, they had to praise the state and, you know, world communism and what have you. Yeah, but in private, nobody believed it, you know, and had, had a private life that was led away from eyes, except there were spies everywhere, so it was very difficult to to be interested in anything that wasn't sanctioned by the government. Yeah.
What's your memory of uh, music as a kid there? Because you came to the U.S. when you were seven, right? I was seven, yeah. But yeah, I, well, uh, you know, I, was, I started playing the violin when I was six, so mm. that was already part of my life, something I was fighting against. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know, uh, I mean, I, I don't know at what point like I, I started having my own musical interests, but mm. the music I grew up with most was sort of like Soviet and Russian folk songs, either played on, you know, like records or cassette tapes or sung. Uh, my father was kind of like enjoyed singing. Mm. These like weird. I think it was like an ironic coping mechanism, but he would sing these kind of like so Soviet propaganda songs, basically. Mm -hmm. you know, like, but, but this is it was they were hard hardwired, you know, mm -hmm. into their consciousness. Well, it's like songs. seeing commercials now. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah. These from, stupid like, commercials from the seventies. Yeah, they get just like, lodged in, into your head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can remember commercials from probably the eighties. You know. But, mm. yeah. I had some other brilliant question that just escaped me. <laughs> Sorry. It'll oh, come back to, I mean, should we see if anybody has? Yeah, 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 definitely. Question? Before before we open it up, I wanted to ask, ask you. There's a kind of hilarious thing in here where you mention. Uh, uh, oh, hold on. There's a quote. <laughs> you saw a sign in a bar that uh, said that the food in the club or in the bar, it was referred to as, quote, the food you dream of in jail. And I just wondered if you'd eaten any of the food in this, in this bar that... Oh, no, it was a greasy spoon. It was like a diner. Oh, so you actually ate there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would have bought, like, there was a, this amazing t-shirt for this place called, uh, I think it was like Nancy's Home Cooking or something, something pretty innocuous. And, and the, the place was just covered in, like, handmade signs. And, uh, like, one of the short order cooks came out or like a bus boy came out with a shirt it's yeah the food you dream of in jail it's yeah. a great it's a great yeah. would be a great tagline for mcdonald's or something <laughs> <laughs> maybe a competitor to mcdonald's if anybody wants to start a, a martin's maybe yeah so i don't know maybe not should we see if anybody <laughs> else has any yeah any other questions questions comments complaints <laughs> yeah. Well, I have, I have one. Um, maybe it's a quasi-question and comment, but I was <clears throat> interested in <clears throat> what you were saying, Dimitri, about, I think you said after school, you uh, went back to driving a cab. Yeah. And uh, he kind of, I can't tell if you were disappointed about that, if you had hoped to lead the life of an artist, um, but um, I have this notion, having worked in the service industry more or less most mm -hmm. of my life, and still having a, a little tiny bit of a creative life, I have this notion that uh, you know, there's something honorable or noble, I mean I don't want to romanticize working life too much because mm -hmm. a lot of it is awful and not romantic, but I think, do, or do you think that in some ways it keeps you in touch with more people and allows you to empathize well, more uh, with, with more people and, and thus maybe create 
art that is more uh, relatable because of that? Well, I, I'm, I'm not going to make judgments on like how the, the art turns out. That's not for me to say. But uh, specifically, driving a cab opened like me up to interactions and experiences with people in in both Boston and Chicago, which is like so. I, I did that job for. Total of twelve years between the two, but uh, I went to parts of town and interacted with people I never would have otherwise. Oh, yeah. And it it turned me into a writer. I'd never written anything before, uh, starting to keep track of the things that happened in the cab. Uh, I never had any any ambitions for writing. I've never taken a writing class. You know, uh, I was always just a painter. Uh, so yeah, for sure, it was super valuable. But whether I'd set out to like it wasn't a situation where I like I was going undercover uh, like as an artist or writer to like do some kind of like expose of you know cab life that wasn't the case I, I just need I had bills that needed to be paid and I didn't know how to do it otherwise so. but yeah I mean in, like pretty early into art school I had no illusions about any kind of like you know grand uh, art world career uh, I mean, I kind of still don't. I, and, uh, yeah, it's it's a horrible industry, the art the art world, art racket. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my my life and my art would definitely be different if I didn't do those jobs. Whether that's like a good thing or a bad thing, I that's that's a counterfactual. That's like a you know, I I don't know the answer to that. You know. Have you gone back to Russia or any desire? Nope, never been back. Uh, so one of the things, I mean, my stock answer to that is I'm from a country that no longer exists right. because I'm from the Soviet Union, yeah. and it's not the Soviet Union. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have any close family left there. I don't know. I did. So I had another book that has yet to be published. That's sort of like a childhood memoir coming to America, beginning to do art kind of thing. Which we'll hopefully see the light of day one at some point. I'll probably have to self publish it. But um, so, as part of the research for that, I did like a, a Google Street view of the street I grew up on and just the building that we lived in. We lived in a communal apartment. If, if you're familiar with like Soviet life at all, like it was like one of these things where there's like a four bedroom apartment, one bathroom, there's like three families living in. You know, that's what, that's what I'm from. Uh, but I looked at this building, and granted, it's you know this forty years later, thirty whatever, forty years later. But I didn't recognize any of it; like it just did not register. And so I don't know what what the value of going going to that place would be right now. Um, yes. Would it at all make sense to s talk about what your parents? wanted you to do or what they think of what you do? Or? It wasn't their ambition for me to be, <laughs> be a painter. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I mean, my parents, so my, my father until very recently was a mathematician and a teacher of math, you know, he was an academic. Uh, and uh, my mother back in the Soviet Union was a doctor. She was a gynecologist, but when they moved to America, you know, because degrees aren't recognized here. She had two little kids and no English, so she wasn't able to ever practice. Uh, you know, her career was cut short, and she drifted from sort of like social work to kind of alternative medicine, and she still sort of 
doing that kind of like reflexology shiatsu stuff like that um but as far as what uh, yeah they tried early on to steer me to something more practical i think i mean no parent wants <laughs> no parent in their right mind would encourage their children to go into art you know i mean <laughs> ones that don't love their children but what about cat driving <laughs> yeah, their dream was to have their son be a cab driver. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, the, yeah. So they, they they tried to push a little bit, but basically, uh, I I was stubborn and willful. We didn't have a great relationship until later, until I was in my twenties. But the compromise was that I, I went to art school rather than not go to any kind of secondary education at all because I didn't have the grades or any interest in like a. a real college. Uh, I, I was a totally indifferent student, you know. I, but I had this art thing, you know, that I did. Uh, I, I still debate whether going to art school, getting a bachelor's was of any use at all. I, I don't know. Uh, but there, that said, I mean, once they saw that I wasn't going to give any of this up and that I was just going to stubbornly go my own way, they'd been very, very supportive. Uh, like way more than they needed to be, yeah. And I've often not made it easy for them <laughs> to be, you know. Since your early days of skipping out on your uh, violin lessons, do you play any music? No. No. Uh, a few years back, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Bill McKay, who's an amazing guitar player, you should look him up, uh, I, I swapped uh, a piece of artwork for guitar lessons, and I did it for like a couple months or something and just dropped it. I couldn't keep it going. I think for time constraints, I was still driving a cab then. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess, yeah, there's only so many hours in the day and there's so many people that are so good at it, you know, like I don't really need, I, I have enough creative outlets, Is you know, I don't need to be doing all of it, you know, <laughs> I think, yeah, the painting and the writing will cover it, you know. I just wanted to interject one question. I realized we didn't talk about this. We were talking earlier. Sorry, about... no time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't it's think over. so, but, but we were talking about the, uh, the uh, biography of Nelson Algren that you're reading now, and I was wondering about his influence uh, on you and your writing and perhaps on your art, because I know you, back in the days when you are on Twitter, um, you maintained a Twitter feed uh, devoted to yeah, there's Nelson, Nelson Algren quote, yeah. uh, Nelson Algren quotes, but yeah, was, but Nelson Algren's your fault too. Uh, yeah, because yeah, you gave me. Uh, I think the first one I got you, you gave me or steered my way was uh, Never Come Morning, which is one of his early books. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you don't know who Nelson Algren is, look him up. He's sort of like maybe the the greatest. Uh, Kind of like writer of Chicago life, like in uh, had kind of had like this heyday in the in the middle of the 20th century, and then had a big fall from grace, but uh, for various complicated reasons. But he introduced me so when I was still in high school to the city of Chicago uh, years before I ever got there. So he paved the way, and his thing was basically a lot of what he did was like kind of like bum around in shitty neighborhoods and uh, eavesdrop on people's conversations like you know bar rooms junkies and all that all that kind of stuff and 
his, a lot of his whole philosophy was that like all you had to do was listen and the world would tell you like its stories. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely like an operating principle of what I do. I mean, basically what I do is eavesdrop and watch and listen because, yeah, I'm of the, my idea about it is that it just, it's a thing that passes through me. Like I don't, it's not, I don't know anything about like things like imagination or, like I don't think it starts with me. It's just a thing that's in the air and it passes through and it's my job to, Lend in some sort of form, and if I do it right, then other people can uh, recognize their life or something familiar in it. But it's not of me, it's just through me. And I think a lot of that was reading people like Nelson Algren. Uh, I think that, yeah, so super influential. Also, yeah, Joseph Mitchell, yeah. Luke Sock, who, who wrote that amazing quote that you started with, who I shamelessly kind of browbeat into giving me that quote. <laughs> because I've sort of become friends with them. But uh, yeah, that's one of the cool things about if you keep doing like a thing long enough, like the art and the writing, you start meeting some of your heroes and like finding out that they're just people. Uh, and Luke's definitely one of those, so yeah. Good? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. I won't get on time. Another hour or something? <laughs> Hard to. Encore. We probably covered it. Yeah, we could leave and do an encore or something. I don't know. Do an Another show starts at midnight. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to reproduce this exactly <laughs> starting at midnight, the yes. whole thing. We can uh, hang out for a little bit and you can talk to the artists. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're not into the public. You can buy their. Yes. Yeah, and, and oh, maybe yeah. buy a book or two. Oh, buy a book or two. And I also have a few copies of my infamous uh, Humble Little magazine, um, I, which I brought specifically because uh, Dimitri either did the covers or interior art. And uh, so you can pick those up too. And there'll be another copy of it, another issue of it out, I hope, in late June. And I'm going to use, if Dimitri lets me, one of these images, or one like um, these images, there are multiple copies, but yeah, I can pass these around. They're um, postcards from the Dial Bookshop in Chicago, and you can order these online. They're great. There's one of Gwendolyn Brooks, there's one of Lorraine Hansberry, Nelson Algren, L. Frank Vaughn, and what's it? Uh, you can just use the Google and find the Dial Bookshop. Yes, yeah, Dial Bookshop. Dot com or something like like if you Google uh, Dial Bookshop it'll come up and in the in their shop section there's like a ephemera and there's the it's a series of I did basically twelve portraits of well known Chicago authors and we made postcards and they're available and the actual the paintings are on display in the bookstore as well. We were going to actually do uh, we don't have time now but we're going to do a short tribute to Google as well as uh, tribute to the city of Boston. <laughs> both in, the in, Boston band and the city of Boston had <laughs> profound influences on our lives and, and helped us become the people we are. And Google presently has given us a lot of inspiration. We use it daily. We swear by it. I think they do great data mining. Great work with the NSA. <laughs> so all of that has made this country so much better and enriched our lives a lot. And I'm speaking for myself, but I think I'm speaking for Dimitri too when I say that.
And yeah, I mean, you just encapsulated everything that my book, <laughs> Music to My Eyes, is all about. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book, and so is the, uh, so is where to. So, think about picking up an issue. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for being here. Mm -hmm.